This is The Rounds Table. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Rounds Table. Thank you for joining us this week. As usual, we have a great show lined up for you. This week, we're focusing on homegrown talent from the University of Toronto, and I am very excited to and delighted to introduce you to Dr. James Downer, who is going to take us through his study this week that was a meta-analysis looking at the impact or the accuracy of the surprise question, which he'll tell you all about. Dr. Downer, thank you for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure. So uh, this was published in CMAG, that's the Canadian Medical Association Journal, in the last month uh, here in 2017. James, why don't you tell us what the bottom line, the main message uh, for your study was? So many people would be familiar with the surprise question and may have read about it or actually been taught uh, to use it as a way of identifying patients uh, at high risk of mortality who may have unmet palliative needs. Um, The bottom line of our study is that the accuracy of the surprise question for predicting intermediate term mortality is sort of poor to moderate, particularly in the non-cancer population, and that was pretty much what we found. Hmm, That's discouraging, uh, unfortunately, as I've sort of thought a lot about the surprise question, and I've certainly heard some of my supervising physicians in the past support its use. So it'll be interesting to hear more about sort of the details of your study and why that finding has come to be. Can you frame it for us a little more? You talked a bit about palliative care in the surprise question as it's used to identify those with unmet needs. Tell us why you've chosen to do this study in particular or frame it in the context of why this surprise question is important. Right, so anything you want to do to a patient who is coming near the end of their life in order to improve their care is in the real world going to rely on some sort of flagging or trigger system that will identify them as being at or near the end of their life. Outside of a research context, you don't have research assistants to flag these people, and sometimes it can be a very nebulous concept is how do you decide when someone's dying and when someone might benefit from palliative care. The surprise question was designed in the late 90s and used ever since then as a kind of intuitive means for physicians to try to identify the patients that they think might be benefiting from a palliative approach. Now, <clears throat> we know that physicians have a tendency to, to be a little optimistic in their prognostication. So it's not asking, who do you think is going to die in the next 12 months? But asking the question somewhat in a reverse way to say, would you be surprised, right? So this is the built into the question is that means of overcoming an inherent optimism in, in the clinician. Um, it has been incorporated into a number of different comprehensive approaches to flagging patients who may have unmet needs, uh, including the gold standards framework, uh, NECPAL in, in, in Spain and, and others. And uh, it's been fairly widely proposed and promoted as a, as a, a means of identifying these patients. Right. And, and do you have an idea of its sort of performance when it comes to the ability to identify patients who have unmet palliative care needs? Yeah. So here's the problem, right, is that this is the common comeback that people have when they read this article is to say, well, you know, you can't criticize the surprise question for its prognostic inaccuracy because it's not a prognostic test. It's a test to identify potentially unmet needs. The, the answer we, that I would put to that is actually when you, when you look at the response to the surprise question and the response to the gold standards framework, all of their sort of disease-specific indicators or general indicators, NECPAL as well, you, you tend to see that it's a fairly similar population being identified by both techniques. The truth is that we don't actually have any good gold standard information on things that routinely and reliably identify patients who have unmet palliative needs. The intuition would be to say, look, if you're going to say, I'm going to say that the, the surprise question is a bad predictor of mortality, and someone's going to say, well, that's okay because mortality is not necessarily a good predictor of palliative need, well, I would say okay, so something's a bad test of a bad surrogate doesn't make it a good test. Right. Fantastic. Well, thanks for framing that. 
let's get into the actual uh, methodology of your, your systematic review. What was the design of the study that you, that you conducted here? So as a systematic review, it was conducted on a number of, uh, of databases, and we used a very sort of broad uh, search term. And it was, of course, not the easiest thing in the world to do. So we, we had a tremendous contribution from our librarian, Marina, to come up with very broad search terms to flag in as many as possible. And we identified you know, many thousands of, uh, of articles and had to screen them down to find uh, relevant ones. The, the common way in which this was used, we, we needed to have outcomes where uh, we knew what happened both to the patients who were flagged as being surprise question positive, but also what happened to those who were surprise question negative. So there were many studies where they used the surprise question as a screening tool and then only followed the ones who were flagged by that means. We, we couldn't use that information right. to identify accuracy, sensitivity, specificity, yeah. etc. But we were able to find in the end uh, 16 studies, 17 cohorts, representing over 11,000 patients where we did have up to one year follow-up. So who are those patients who ended up being included or, or the studies, whatever is more appropriate to talk about in your systematic review? We, we had a good mix of different disease populations. So we had uh, some that were purely cancer populations. Uh, we had a number that were purely non-cancer population and, and nephrology was the sort of common, the most common group there. And then we had one group of mixed patients in an ICU. So just for our listeners' sake, because we may have lost it in our banter thus far, really what was the primary question or the primary outcome that you were looking at as it relates to the surprise question? So we wanted to look at the diagnostic accuracy or the prognostic accuracy, if you will, for the surprise question predicting mortality in the coming 12 months. So the surprise question is worded, would you be surprised if this person died in the next 12 months? Okay, I'm excited to hear more. What, what did you find in the end? So we found in the end that, uh, as I said, it was kind of a poor to moderate predictor. Um, uh, overall, the area under receiver operating curve in sort of the 0.79 to 0.8 range. Sensitivities in the 60% range, specificity in the 80% range. So certainly not great numbers when you're looking at a, at a, at a test that is supposed to flag people or screening test. Yeah, so, so for our listeners who are not so familiar with area under the curve and what those numbers mean, like can, can you translate that into some... So, so uh, you know, this is where you plot on a, on a simple curve, the y-axis being sensitivity and the x-axis being one minus specificity. And then you plot different values and any numbers that you get out of the studies on that curve. A, a coin flip, for example, would have a, a perfectly straight 45 degree line going from bottom left to top right. And the area under that curve would be 0.5. Um, a perfect discriminator that would tell you absolutely who's going to die and who's going to live would essentially have an area that would occupy the entire square of that graph and give you a score of 1.0. So the numbers range from 0.5 to 1.0. So you're saying with an area under the curve of about 79% or 0.79, you have a slightly better than 50/50 chance of getting your prognosis right, That's but it's but it's you know pretty poor as far as you, what you would hope its accuracy would be in somebody predicting life and Correct. death. Correct. I mean, that, if you you put that into context, actually, when you ask intensive care physicians to predict who's going to die in the ICU, you'll get a number of sort of 0 0.83, 0 0.84. So um, it, it compared even to sort of other physician gestalt. Uh, questions about survival, it actually is substantially worse. What we did do is we divided them into cancer and non-cancer populations, and we found that actually in the cancer that the number squeaked over 0.8, so it got up to 0.82 or 0.83, whereas in non-cancer it, it dipped down into the 0.77 range, which is, you know, numbers in the 0.7, low 0.8 range are really not all that helpful for distinguishing those who will live and those who will die. 
So suffice to say, a bit better of a tool to use in the cancer population and probably not at all really in the non-cancer population. Yeah, I, I think that's not an unfair conclusion. I mean, the problem you have to think about is, look, if you want a screening test, you want a test to flag people who might benefit, right? What You're looking for a test with very high sensitivity, and it doesn't matter if there are a lot of false positives as long as the cost of a false positive is not high. The, the problem here is that actually the sensitivity was only in the 60% range. So you're missing about one third of those who are going to die. Yeah. The other thing, and then the positive predictive value was sort of in the 30 to 40% range, meaning that two out of three positives were false positives. If this means now that you're potentially sitting down and spending a lot of time with these patients, asking about symptoms, et cetera, uh, that's probably not harmful, but it is an it is a fairly substantial investment of your time. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure with the resource limitations, especially in the palliative care uh, specialty in Canada, that you might be uh, limited in your ability to see a bunch, you know, two-thirds of the patients who may not actually need the services of a palliative care but have to go through that consultation. Yeah, I, I think it's very clear that certainly the surprise question cannot be used as a trigger for any resource-intense uh, intervention. Great. Anything else interesting that you wanted to, to point out from your findings in your study? Yeah, I, I think also what was interesting is a couple of studies did have kappa scores. So it was interesting to look at inter-observer variability, which was very, very high. So al although people were giving getting roughly the same numbers, when they, when they actually had the same patients being assessed by multiple assessors, <clears throat> the kappa scores were actually quite low. So in the 0.18 to sort of 0.3, 0.4 range, which is, which is really... Uh, sh such variability uh, suggests that you know the surprise question answer often tells you as much about the physician as it yeah. does about the patient. Which right. again, uh, you know, if you were think if you were trying to test people for cardiac disease coming into the emergency room, somebody having an acute coronary syndrome, imagine a test that would miss one third, mm -hmm. that would be false positive two thirds of the time, and would actually the result would depend heavily on who was actually doing it, that some people would tend to, to, to depending on the operator, you would get much more positives than negatives. Yeah. This starts to seem like a test that is more challenging to, to apply clinically. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds that way. Any limitations that you thought were important for our listeners to hear about? Yeah, I mean, the risk of bias in many of the studies was at least moderate. We kind of took uh, investigators at their word when it came to assessing for mortality, that they did the appropriate follow-up, and, and we just had to make a, an assumption that they, that they did it accurately. At the same time, we didn't know in many of the studies whether the answer to the surprise question actually prompted a change in care. So was mm -hmm. it to some degree a self-fulfilling prophecy? Now, that's probably not relevant in the cancer world where people can make uh, decisions to stop chemo and start palliative of care and that does not affect their, their life expectancy or might actually prolong it. Right. But if you're a dialysis dependent patient and you would have stayed on dialysis except for the fact that somebody asked themselves the surprise question, approached you and discussed alternatives and you decided that you did want to stop dialysis, right. then then that's uh, that that obviously is a possibility that, that you may have overestimated the accuracy real world of the surprise question. Did you come across any quality of life indicators or, or sort of symptom control indicators that were measured as a consequence of using this surprise question? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, we, I don't recall that we, we got any of that data in the studies that we pulled, but obviously this is the bigger question, right? Like this, does the, uh, and, and to your earlier question is, does the surprise question actually identify better people with unmet palliative needs? And we simply don't know the answer to that question. And my, my intuition is based on what you're seeing that, you know, you're probably going to get similar numbers to what you see in terms of mortality prediction, but that, that's obviously a guess. 
So overall, I mean, I think it sounds like a very well-conducted study. You know, just for our listeners, systematic reviews, um, there's a good way to do them and there's a bad way to do them, and this is certainly done in the best way possible. There are limitations that we've pointed out based on the studies that are included, but that's a natural consequence of uh, systematic reviews with whatever's out there. And so I think overall that, that uh, on the balance of strengths and weaknesses, you know, you should take this study uh, and its findings to be that of, of a true finding and that the surprise question may not be the best screening tool in the case of prognostication. Would you agree, to, uh, James? I think I think that's accurate. I mean, the, the one thing that you have to sort of acknowledge here is that this is a very tough area to study. So some people have gotten a little defensive, I think, about it. People who are longstanding supporters of the and, and, and advocates for the surprise mm. question. And I feel badly if they feel like I, we're sort of uh, criticizing their work or attacking the surprise question. But I think, you, you know, you have to you have to look at the data and, and, and follow the studies. Certainly when this was designed, there were certainly no alternatives, that this was the best thing we had going. It is cheap. It is easy to start doing. But the problem is that now with, with the benefit of some hindsight, outside of the cancer world, a number of the qualitative studies have also suggested that there are issues with uh, with the surprise question. So looking at, for example, family practice, um, you know, rates of utilization are very, very low. People don't like it and they don't mm. tend to use it. Uh, particularly those who uh, are involved in care of the elderly. There was one famous comment in a paper sort of saying that uh, somebody with a heavy component of geriatrics in their, in their family practice saying that he wouldn't be surprised if any of his patients died in the next year, mm. but they might also live a decade, every one For of sure. them. And, yeah. and so is this really a helpful test in that context? Um, what ultimately y- you want to do here is you don't want to criticize a test without proposing an alternative. Right. And so I think the, the future is to look at maybe trying to be a bit, uh, identify means of flagging these patients that is a bit more reliable, perhaps a bit more valid, uh, also has to be low, sort of low workload, and, uh, and, and things that can really help and complement a clinician's decision-making at the bedside so that they can decide what they want to do. At the end of the day, though, your problem is always going to be subsequent to that, that you need your healthcare providers to be able to meet those needs. So it's no use identifying unmet needs if you have no ability to meet them. So improving skill at symptom management, advanced care planning, and other supportive aspects of care, having a comprehensive uh, home support system for those who are dying and want to die at home, th- these are obviously outstanding challenges that no prognostic test is going to address. An exciting future that leaves lots of opportunities for researchers like you and myself. So thank you, James, for joining us today. Anything else you wanted to add? No, that's all, Kieran. Thanks so much for, uh, for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Listeners, I do recommend you check out the article. I will post the link on, on the blog. And pleasure having you on the show. Look forward to having you back sometime soon. Thanks. Take care. Hi, listeners. It's Emily and Shaliza back with the final special segment of the year. We are covering a sensitive and important topic in Canada, medical assistance in dying, or MAPE. Thanks, Emily, and hello again, listeners. I was just in a placement at a palliative care center, and it got me thinking about our approach as clinicians to end-of-life care. I enjoyed getting up-to-date on the latest developments with regard to MAID. What put MAID on the agenda for Canadians? Two major cases put MAID on the radar of the Canadian government, the Rodriguez versus British Columbia in 1993 and the Carter v. Canada in 2015. The former case involved a woman suffering from ALS who wished to have her life terminated by a qualified physician. However, the criminal code deemed it a criminal offense to assist a person to commit suicide. The Supreme Court of Canada dismissed her appeal. The latter case involved two patients, one suffering from spinal stenosis and another from ALS. After the trial, 
the court found that prohibition of MAID violates the rights of competent adults who are suffering intolerably as a result of an irreversible medical condition. It infringed on the rights of Canadians, right to life, right to liberty, and right to security. In February 2015, the 1993 ruling was overturned. MAID was decriminalized by the Canadian Supreme Court on February 6, 2016. The new legislation was drafted within a year, and the federal government's new assisted dying law received royal assent on June 17, 2016. It is noteworthy that Quebec's laws regarding MAID came into effect in December 2015, earlier than the rest of Canada. This was an important impetus for the federal government's attention to the issue. June 2016. Wow, a year has passed since then. Where are we now? Canada has developed a new medical assistance in dying law called Bill C-14. It allows for aid in dying either through prescription of lethal medication or through administration. This can happen one of two ways. Either a physician or nurse practitioner can directly administer a substance that causes the death of the person who has requested it, or a physician or nurse practitioner can give or prescribe to a patient a substance that they can self-administer to cause their own death. Two independent healthcare professionals need to evaluate an individual in order to determine whether he or she qualifies for MAID. Moreover, in Canada, there is a 10-day waiting period between a written request and provision of MAID. During this waiting period, at any point, the patient can change their mind and choose to not go ahead with MAID. So who's eligible for this service? To qualify, an individual must be 18 years or older, be capable of providing informed consent at the time of MAID, and must fulfill all four of the following criteria. One, have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. Two, be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability. Three, endure physical or psychological suffering that is intolerable to them, and four, their natural death has become reasonably foreseeable. Now that we have a sense of what is required for medical assistance in dying, in practice, what does MAID really look like in Canada? From the legislation change up until the end of April this year, 1,300 Canadians have ended their lives through medical assistance in dying. Although legalized, little guidance or coordination has been provided on how to implement MAID, and only one published report exists. A recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine by a team from the University Health Network, or UHN, in Toronto discussed how to develop a hospital-based program for MAID. The purpose of UHN's program was not only to create a framework to support staff and ensure appropriate and effective assessment and delivery to patients, but also to share their institution's experience, which may be valuable to other healthcare facilities when implementing the program. A three-team MAID model was created, which consists of clinical, assessment, and intervention teams. A multidisciplinary quality committee oversees the operations of the team and reports data to the Medical Advisory Committee. In the first year of reporting at UHN, there were 74 MAID inquiries, 74% of which were for patients whose primary diagnosis was cancer, and 19 actually received MAID. All patients in the University Health Network report received MAID via the intravenous route of administration. This is the default through their framework, given that an oral route yields a slower death. If patients had wanted the oral route of administration, their physician could have directed them to contact a community provider through a referral service of the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. For clinicians listening, what resources are available to guide them with regards to practical considerations for MAID in Canada? A MAID resource guide is available on the Ontario College of Family Physicians website, which will be on the rounds table show notes for this episode. These include resource maps on what clinicians need to do from the first point of inquiry to actual provision of MAID. 
This also includes guidance for physicians who are not comfortable with providing this to patients themselves. The College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, also known as CPSO's website, also includes information on the policies and steps that need to be taken when assessing patients' eligibility for MAID. This will also appear on the rounds table show notes for this episode. A serious note to wrap up our final special segment, but an important topic to be informed about as we move ahead in our careers. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone. So we have a special guest on our show again today. Uh, you're well known to the show, Mike Fraley, but welcome back. And I think we're really excited to, to hear about what you're going to tell us about as far as your article for the week. So welcome back, Mike. It's great to see you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Karen. Always appreciate it. So as you all know that this is a homegrown talent week highlighting the emerging talent that's coming out of the University of Toronto. Uh, and Mike is definitely one of the shining stars. And even though he's spending his time down in Boston pursuing for the research uh, training, we still miss him and still hold him uh, dear to our hearts in Toronto and consider him a, a good old Maple Leaf fan and homegrown Toronto boy. So Mike, why don't you set the stage for us and tell us what you're bringing to the show today? All right, perfect, Kieran. So I'm talking about a study I was part of entitled The Risk of Diabetic Ketoacidosis, or DKA, after the initiation of an SGLT2 inhibitor. And this study is going to be published uh, in the New England Journal later on this week, which is exciting. Definitely very exciting. The holy grail for many researchers is to get an article in the New England Journal. So congratulations, Mike. And for those of you who are interested in SGL2 inhibitors, uh, Mike also published a five things to know about SGL2 inhibitors in the Canadian Medical Association Journal a couple weeks ago. So check that out as well. Mike, what's the bottom line for your article and your study? So the bottom line is that this class of medications was associated with a two to two and a half fold increased risk of diabetic ketoacidosis compared to DPP-4 inhibitors, another class of medications for diabetes. Definitely something comes up a lot in my practice when people come in with DKA and if they're on an SGL2 inhibitor, we think, is this related to it or not? So I think you've asked and you're going to answer a very important question. Can you frame it a little for us? Why did you choose to pursue this study? Oh, for sure. So I thought it was an important question to attempt to answer. It's something that many other people have had. And, you know, I definitely can't take credit for being the only one with this idea. I think many people have thought about this because we've seen patients, patients who just shouldn't get diabetic ketoacidosis, who come into the emergency room and they're not on insulin. They haven't had diabetes for all that long, but they're on this new medication and their blood work suggests they have diabetic ketoacidosis. So I was just sort of hoping to kind of unravel this and see if it was a real signal or not. Yeah, absolutely. I've had that scratch my head moment of exactly the situation you've described for a couple of patients who've come across uh, under my care. So Mike, unpack the methods for us. How did you go about designing this study to answer the question? We used the um, Truven Market Scan database in the U.S. That's a, um, a healthcare insurance database, has access to 70 million some odd people's uh, worth of uh, data, de-identified of course. And what we did was we developed a cohort study. And this cohort study consisted of patients who newly started SGLT2 inhibitors, they weren't on them before, and then compared to them to patients who were newly started on DPP-4 inhibitors, and they hadn't been on those before. So this new user design is at the crux of how we created our cohort. 
Definitely. And why did you choose a DPP-4 inhibitor as your comparator group for medications? So that was selected mainly because it's a second-line medication for diabetes similar to SGLT2 inhibitors. It's an oral medication like SGLT2 inhibitors, but DPP-4 inhibitors is not associated with diabetic ketoacidosis. So we thought that this would be a possible um, active comparator. Is the perfect active comparator? Uh, I'm not sure, but the most important thing kind of comes down to the table one data, which we'll get to, but we thought it was a reasonable comparator. Well, let's get into that table one data. Tell us a bit more about the patients who were included in this study. Perfect. So for the patients who are included in the study, the table one in the manuscript just has the matched population. I'll go through um, the data before the individuals are matched as well. So we identified uh, approximately 90,000 um, patients who are newly prescribed a DPP-4 inhibitor and approximately 50,000 patients who were newly prescribed an SGLT2 inhibitor. And we had a number of covariates for these patients. So we knew about their demographic information. We knew about chronic medical conditions they had. We knew about what medications they were on, diabetes-related, non-diabetes-related. We had proxies for diabetes severity. We had risk factors for DKA. And we had information about their healthcare utilization and preventative health measures, etc. A very long-winded way of not actually answering your question, but for the table one itself, we had 75 um, different covariates. We were only able to show approximately 20 of them, but over 80% of all of those baseline characteristics were well-balanced before any form of matching. So the typical patient that then ended up in the study is a 55-year-old patient, uh, 50% were male. The majority of patients had high blood pressure, had hyperlipidemia, and medications that they were on included metformin, sulfonylureas, etc. And the vast majority of these patients were not on insulin. Hmm, okay. And so just clarify for us, uh, what was your primary question of your study? What, what, was you, what were you really looking at? Sure. So the primary question was looking at the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis after uh, patients were started on SGLT2 inhibitor. And um, we defined diabetic ketoacidosis based on the insurance claims data. So very specifically, when somebody comes into hospital and we only looked at you know DKA that resulted in hospitalization, when somebody comes into hospital, they will have a primary reason for their admission and then many secondary diagnoses. We only use the primary diagnosis and previous studies have shown that this has a positive predictive value for DKA above 90%. Fantastic. And did you look at any particular time frame when it comes to starting the medication and the development of DKA? Yes. So the primary endpoint looked at the risk within 180 days of starting the medication. And then we had predefined time points as sensitivity analyses. And this included 30 days after starting the medication or 60 days after starting the medication. And these might sound kind of random, but the way we chose these time points was based on the case reports, and we got a sense of the most common time at which patients were presenting after they were started on the medication. All right, you set the table in a beautiful way. Take us through and service the entree. What were the main findings of your study? So for the primary endpoint for risk of diabetic ketoacidosis, and this is specifically uh, hospitalization with diabetic ketoacidosis, there was a 
over twofold increased risk. So that's just a relative term in absolute terms. You're looking at approximately one case, one to two cases per thousand in your control group and five or more cases per thousand with SGLT2 inhibitors. So again, you know, uh, fairly impressive relative risk, but the absolute risk is quite small. This means the vast majority of patients will probably not experience diabetic ketoacidosis. Any other uh, findings that you wanted to point out to us that you thought were interesting? Yeah, so in our predefined um, secondary endpoints uh, or sensitivity analyses, we saw that this risk was apparent within 30 days of starting the medication and also apparent within 60 days of starting the medication, uh, a two and a half fold increased risk. And we also added a post hoc analysis at the request of one of the reviewers and attempted to look at whether or not the risk was confined to patients who were on insulin or not. And although our sample started to shrink, we were clearly able to show that there was an increased risk even amongst patients who are not taking insulin. Fantastic. So definitely an important finding, I think, and one that uh, sort of confirms the suspicions in the case reports on a much larger scale that there is an association with DKA and these uh, SGL2 inhibitors. Um, I hazard to ask this because it's a cohort study, but I have to, to know, is it you glycemic DKA or just good old-fashioned DKA, or do you not know because of the level of the administrative data we're looking at? Oh, good question, Kieran. You you sound like one of the peer reviewers, and um, unfortunately, we don't have the granular data to answer that question, and that is an absolute limitation of this study. We used claims data to identify diabetic ketoacidosis. I didn't actually know what their blood sugar was. I didn't actually know what their serum bicarb was. So uh, a good question to which I don't have a, a meaningful answer. Right. But as you pointed out before, the positive predictive value of the diagnostic code in and of itself, regardless of what their actual serum bicarb or their serum glucose was, uh, is very strongly predictive of the actual diagnosis in the real world. So, you know, we're not concerned that uh, that this is a miscoding problem by the uh, by the database abstractors. So definitely a very fascinating finding. Anything, uh, any other limitations you were concerned about or perhaps came up in your, in your review that, that would be important to point out? Other important limitations, obviously with any retrospective study, you can't actually determine cause and effect. And there's always going to be other unmeasured confounding factors that you cannot account for. So, you know, maybe the astute listener would say, you know what, everyone knows that SGLT2 inhibitors are probably associated with DKA. So maybe those doctors were just seeing the patient in the eMERGE and they got excited and they're just more likely to call that diabetic ketoacidosis. Whereas in the patient who came in on a DPP-4 inhibitor, you know, maybe you just called it right. pneumonia or whatever. Um, and our kind of response to that is we specifically um, chose a time window before the FDA released their warning and before the time period that the vast majority of the cases were reported because we really wanted to hone in on the time period where this truly was you know, quite uncertain. So hopefully that helps to combat that. Yeah, I mean, it, I certainly think in my mind on the, the balance of strengths and weaknesses in your study that that there's very little that I can conjure up to say that it's a deal breaker. You know, I don't believe the finding. I think there is definitely an association between these medications and I've seen it clinically. So it, it all fits in my mind and I congratulate you on a great study. 
what what uh, what do you think the main learning points that you want listeners to take home from your efforts are? Oh, sure. So I think the main point is that in terms of this data, which I think is the largest study, uh, but maybe there's other out, others out there that SGLT2 inhibitors are associated with an increased risk of DKA, even amongst the patients who aren't on insulin and maybe they haven't had, uh, maybe they don't have the, the very severe diabetes that you might associate with for patients who are at risk of DKA. So it's important to obviously be on the lookout for this to counsel patients. But then also, you know, with ACE inhibitors, I think, or, or, or ARBs, it's become common practice that you start the medication and, you know, a couple weeks later, um, a month later, you order their electrolytes and you see what their potassium is. Um, I think it's very reasonable um, that for patients who you're worried about, then a couple weeks after you start the medication, see what their serum bicarb is doing. And if it's starting to tank, uh, maybe we need to be concerned about that. Of course, my study didn't answer that question, but that's something I think is a, a reasonable consideration for, for patients who are started on this medication. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And certainly when it comes to my practice, I will probably not scratch my head so much anymore if I see a patient come in on an SGL2 who I'm suspecting has DKA. Uh, and that's largely a consequence of your well-conducted study, Mike. So thank you very much for, for taking us through it and sharing that with us. We really appreciate it. And it's certainly worthy of being on the show as it's anything published in the New England Journal of Medicine is of quality uh, and interest to all. Cool. Thanks so much, Karen. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm always happy to uh, be on the show. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?